I believe that people, for the most part, are good. When a tragedy happens, we want to help. That's really the whole basis for the GoFundMe website. You can read about someone who's in some kind of desperate situation, whether it's from an accident or a critical illness or something else, and you can literally help them. And when something really devastating happens and it affects a whole city, we see an immediate result, the psychology of community. This is what happened in New York City right after 9-11. On any other day, people are out doing what they need to do, going from one place to another, mostly preoccupied with what they have to do that day. But in the aftermath of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, that completely changed. Suddenly, New York City wasn't millions of individuals, it was a group, a community. Everyone's to-do list went out the window, and the immediate priority was to help those who needed it. And one of the interesting effects of that tragedy was a surge in young people enlisting in the military. Our country had been attacked, and many people felt that signing up for the military was a way to perhaps prevent future attacks. My guest today is Michael, but he goes by the nickname CQ. He lived in New York City when 9-11 happened, and he was one of those young men who decided to join the military and help defend our country. But then something happened that brought his military career to an unexpected early end. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. This might seem like a random question. Who's your favorite stand-up comic? You know, I thought about this a lot, and the honest answer is it, it changes. It changes very frequently for me. I love comedy. So I can tell you like today, today, 
Uh, some of my favorites are Tom Segura and Chad Daniels. But traditionally, I like people who put up a mirror and reflect society back. I mean, there's nothing wrong with comedians that are like, oh, man, I hate my, my job or I hate this or that. And But I love guys that can challenge the perception of the audience and go like, you know, oh, you think you're this and puts that mirror up and go like, well, this is what I think. Um, so guys like, you know, Daniel Tosh or, or you know, Jerry Seinfeld was very, you know, like poking, you know, the, the reality, you know, why are waiting rooms this way or why is, you know, plain food this way? So um, the standard fallback, well, airplane food, am I right? Yes. So, uh, yeah, those are, those are my guys. But yeah, right today, today, I, I like Chad Daniels. I just saw him live a couple of weeks ago and uh, Tom Segura is really, really funny. And that may seem like a silly question to the people that are listening right now, but we are going to circle back to it and it will make sense. Yeah. So let's talk about what happened to you. But but before that day, you I had to ask you this. You went into the military straight out of high school. Was that always your plan? Not at all. At the time I was going through high school, I was on the wrestling team. I was also on the football team. I was also into uh, drama. I was in the uh, musicals, you know, the musical plays and whatnot. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was looking at colleges because this was like my junior year. I was looking at colleges. And then I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened. And I should specify that I was a senior in high school in New York City when 9-11 happened. And so that really kind of altered the trajectory of my life, obviously. And uh, pretty soon after graduating, I decided to, well, really throughout my senior year, I, I, I kept bouncing back between, you know, what I was going to do and, and how the world was different. And the military had never even crossed my mind, to be honest, prior to 9-11. And, you know, being a kid from inner city, New York City, I didn't know anybody that served. I didn't have family members that served or anything like that. Obviously, after 9-11 happened, there was a lot, big recruitment drive. And so you started seeing commercials and advertisements and billboards. And uh, it started to creep into, you know, my consciousness as an option. And yeah, when I graduated uh, high school, I decided to, uh, to enlist. So if you had not even thought about prior to this joining uh, the military, how do you decide which branch to join and what your job would be? That's a great question. I am going to tell you something that most people wouldn't even know about me and that uh I hide with great frequency. <laughs> wow. So we got breaking news right yeah, here. Yeah, you podcast. get you get an exclusive here. So anybody that knows me, I was in the army, I was infantry, uh airborne infantry. And when I first decided to join, I wanted to fly fighter jets. I walked into an Air Force recruiting station and then and I said, man, I, I, I want to join the military. And they say, hey, great time to do it. I said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, man, I want to fly fighter jets. And they kind of laughed at me for a number of reasons. Like, just, you know, just walk in and be like, I want to fly fighter jets. And they're like, all right, cool, sign here. There's just a, a, a laundry list of, of qualifications you have to have and, and, and different things you have to do, which I, I didn't qualify for any of that. But I also, like, I wore glasses. I had been on medication. So, like, there's a laundry list of reasons why they basically laughed me out of the office. Anybody that knows the military air forces can be the pickiest of all the branches to let people in because of 
how many people want to join the Air Force versus any of the other uh, branches. And so they can be extremely picky. So I didn't qualify for anything. So they kind of laughed me out of the office. I, I, I was like, you know what? Screw this. And and it was a it was a big recruitment center where they all the branches were represented. And so I, I walked out that office and the next open door I saw was the army office. And I was like, hey, I you know, I wear glasses and you know, I've taken medicine. Is that an issue? Like, nope, not at all. Sit here. You have to take this thing called the ASVAB, and it's an it's an aptitude test to learn what jobs you would qualify for in the military. And I scored really well. I scored really well, maybe like 98th percentile. So like out of the 240 jobs in the military, I qualified for like 230 of them. So the Air Force didn't know what they were missing. <laughs> well, there was, there's a lot more to it than just the smarts. I didn't look the part either for, uh, for those that know. But yeah, so, so I, I qualified for all the jobs. And I just, as I was sitting there reading through it, I, I don't know, man, nothing, nothing spoke to me. It was just like boring and not interesting, boring, boring. And then I came upon infantry. And, you know, the idea that, and of course they, they really sell it, right? It's like you're a frontline fighter. You're the tip of the spear. You're, you're this and that. And you're, you know, you're making the difference. You know, you're not, there's, there's infantry and then there's everybody that supports the infantry. Like that's, that's how it breaks down. It sounded awesome. And then I, I added airborne in so I could, I could jump out of planes for a living. And then that's how I ended up in the, the airborne infantry. And you had just barely signed up when you, Went right into combat. Yeah, I I joined in January of 2000, 2003. Because what happened was I, I I tried to I enlisted right after I graduated, but there were so many people enlisting at that time that I was actually on like they called it the delay entry program. So you signed up, you did everything, and then you just had to wait. And so I waited like eight months before I was finally shipped out. So you know, graduating in June of two thousand two wasn't until January of the next year that I finally entered basic training and went to Fort Benning, Georgia, did my basic training there, did my advanced infantry there, did my airborne school there. Right out of the gate, they go, hey, you're getting sent to Italy, to the 173rd Airborne Brigade in Italy. And I was like, oh, man, that's great. And, and it's just a dream assignment. And you know, for years, it was like, best place in the world you can get stationed because you know it's Italy and it's gorgeous women and food and uh, all these great things. Well, Post 9-11, it was one of the most deployed units in that section of the world. And so as soon as I graduated, got to the base, I in-processed for like a week. And next thing you know, they're like, hey, get on this plane. We're going to Iraq. And I was just like, oh, okay, cool. You know, I'm, I'm 19. I turned 19 in basic. And now I'm on a plane uh, to war. And we jumped into Iraq. We're there for about 15 months. Before uh, before I finished that tour, so going into that, it seems like everything everything happens so fast. I mean, being from New York City, you know, you figure, you think you know New Yorkers are scrappy, they're tough, they fight. But I mean, you said you were in drama club. Were you, <laughs> were, you, were you? Did you feel ready to go to combat? No, no, for for a number of reasons. You're right. It, it happened really fast, and there was a lot of. Uh, uh, it, it was hard in the beginning because while I went to basic and I graduated all that stuff, basic is exactly what it says. You learn basic things. You learn how to march. You learn how to take orders. You learn how to shoot. You don't really learn the ins and outs of your job, so to speak, especially with infantry. Infantry training is just, you know, run, shoot, jump. You know, it's very getting your body ready 
but the actual tactics of your unit depend on your unit. So the guys that I deployed with had been spending the last six months preparing for that deployment, had been working on battle drills and, and you know assignments and all these things. And I just get there and they're like, yeah, get in this truck. And, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's like uh, getting signed to a football team and they're like, don't worry about the playbook. You know, you'll figure it out while you're out there. It's like, you're just uh, running around my head. First time I was ever in a Humvee, they told me to drive, which in the real world, coming from New York City, I didn't have a driver's license and I'd never been in a Humvee before. So I'm in a combat scenario in, uh, we, you know, we do a lot of night operations. So it was a night operation, my first mission, night operation. And they're like, listen, you know, we need a driver. Since you're the least experienced, you know, combat, you know, they, I have no experience as far as being a, you know, they can't trust me. So they're just like, here, you drive. It's the least responsible thing you can do. They didn't trust me to, to be a part of the team because I hadn't trained with them. So they had no idea my capabilities. And so, you know, like, they just gave me the driving duty. I mean, I'd driven before, but like my first experience in combat was driving in pitch black conditions because, you know, we have night vision and thing. I had never used night vision before. When I was in basic training, we had one day of night vision training, or one night of night vision training. And that night, uh, one of my, I don't know what to call battle buddies, uh, had gotten bit by a snake and they had me take him to the, you know, the medics or whatever. I'd missed that day of that one like four hour block of instruction for night vision training. And so like my first mission, I'm using night vision goggles, driving a vehicle that I didn't know how to operate in a combat zone, in a very active combat zone. So uh, yeah, it was, I kind of got thrown into the deep end of the pool and just had to uh, survive. That is some pressure. And knowing that you, your buddies, their their lives could depend on you. Absolutely. So you were in Iraq for for 15 months. And then there was a year of training, and then you went to Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So after you'd been in Afghanistan for about six months, you must have felt obviously a little more comfortable, a little more experienced. You know what's going on. Sure. And you'd been there six months, and then tell us what happened. I mean, to your first point, yes. Surviving 15 months in Iraq, a lot of close calls, and we lost some people, and you know, you went through a lot. You know, we. We gelled as unit, obviously, after about four or five months of that first tour, you know, I, I won the trust and confidence of the guys around me and you live in the trenches together and you, you build a bond. And so I got pretty good by the end of that first tour. And then that year between deployments, we spent training. You know, we got a bunch of new people in, like I said, we lost people. So we got a bunch of new people in. So I, I got to be the, you know, it's weird when you get the new people in and I still feel new. And yet these guys are looking at me at this, as this combat grizzled veteran, you know, I've got all the decorations and things and, and, and now they're the new guys and I'm there to, I have to mentor them up. And so, uh, we spent a year of training. And so by the time we got to Afghanistan, I, I definitely felt much more prepared, much more prepared to do my job and to, and to lead. I had, I was just on the cusp of getting promoted to sergeant and having my own team. And so, yeah, it, it was, it was a much different experience the second time around, but a lot of people don't realize too that although well, they're both classified as the global war on terror, fighting in Iraq and fighting in Afghanistan widely different, widely different fights and and situations and setups and combat tactics and and everything, everything 
you know, you might as well have been fighting in the desert in one and, and Antarctica in the other. Like it, it was just so completely different. But like you said, I, I, it, we, we knew we were going to be there a year. I made it about six months into my deployment. And during one of our missions, we were doing air assault missions, coming in on helicopters, looking for high value targets that had been operating in our area. We, we broke a cardinal rule, which is you don't want to operate the same way multiple times. We did the same style of, of mission for like, like five days. And on that fifth day, they set up an ambush for us. We were looking for specifically someone. He was, you know, our intelligence gathering was saying that he, you know, he might have been like the, at that time, the right hand man of Osama bin Laden. He had been operating in our area. We were just on the boundary of Afghanistan and Pakistan, and we knew they'd been coming back and forth. That area is very mountainous. So the vehicles, is, it's hard to maneuver and get to places quickly. So we've been coming in on Blackhawks. I won't say how we were gathering the intelligence, but we were finding out where he was. And, and every time we'd get there, he had, we'd just missed him. And so on the last day, they're like, you know what? Instead of you know, waiting for the word and then gearing up and running to the planes, you know, like, what we'll do is we're, we're going to be geared up. We're going to be ready. We're just going to sit on the birds and wait. So that way, the second we get that go, we're up in the air. Cuts down on 10, 15 minutes of prep time. Okay, so he's out there. It was like 30-something hours. We're just sitting there waiting. Finally get the go-ahead. We're up in the air. We're going. I actually joked with one of my teammates, and I said, uh, watch today be the day I get shot. Now, as prophetic as that sounds, I said that before a lot of missions, First of all, and second of all, I was due to go on R&R. So every, when you spend a year in combat, every member of that team will get two weeks dispersed. We, we all don't go on vacation at the same time, but my two-week leave was coming up. So I was joking like, oh, watch today, I get shot. You know, this is one of my last few missions and, and whatever. We're flying to the, to the point. We all have headsets on. We fly with the doors open. And I'm looking out, and I, the helicopter pilot comes over, and he says, uh, we're 30 seconds out. So I lean out and I look ahead because I, you know, we're flying directly at it. So I can usually see a city, a town, a uh, camp, whatever it is we're coming on. I can start communicating with my team, you know, how we're going to execute. One of the things we have to determine is if it's like a town, we can land on the outskirts, land, exfil, and attack, whatever. But sometimes, you know, it's cave systems or it's a fort on the top of a hill. So we can't land. We have to figure out, do we jump out? Do we have to hook up the ropes and rappel down? So that's what I'm looking to assess. And when I looked out, I just saw a lot of hills, a lot of mountainous range, but I didn't see anything. So okay, I'm like, all right, maybe it's tucked away behind a hill. I can't see it. It gives me the call. Hey, we're 10 seconds out. Look out again. I still see nothing. So now I'm starting to dawn, dawn on me like, okay, this is not a town. This is not a village. This has got to be one of those cave systems. They're either in transport, they're either moving from one thing to the other, or they're hunkered down in some in some camp, you know, in the middle of caves. Uh, so I tell my team, I'm like, hey, we're, you know, we're not landing because helicopter, if it lands on a slanted, it'll it'll roll. A lot of people don't realize that. Giving them signals, we're gonna hover. They're asking me if we're gonna hook up the ropes or not. I said, I, I don't know. You gotta see where where we get to. And so finally the the pilot goes, All right, we're here. I see nothing. But I see we're we're hovering, like we're coming in. We there's room for us to drop in. I said, Dad, don't bother hooking up the ropes. We'll just jump. We're airborne. We're used to <laughs> taking bigger hits. In training, we do 12 to 15 foot jumps. This was about eight to ten. So I was like, we're fine. 
So I'm first one out. I jump. I I eat shit on the landing. It was just the worst. Like, I didn't calculate it right. I mean, I just lost my balance. I boom, hit like a sack of potatoes. I roll, knock the wind out of myself. And I'm just like, oh, geez, that's embarrassing. You know, like, oh, God, I, I hope nobody saw that. I get up to a knee. I'm like dusting myself off. I'm looking around. I don't see anything. I look back. And, I, you know, as guys are exiting the helicopter, dropping out, I can hear them boom, 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 hitting the ground. I look back just in time to see the last guy coming out of the helicopter. Everything happened very slowly, but I saw him not exit smoothly. Like he kind of twisted. It's hard to explain. He kind of just made a weird move and just fell straight down, landed on his legs. And then I see him grabbing at his leg and I can see he's screaming, but can't hear anything. Helicopter is very loud. We have, you know, headsets on and everything. And I'm thinking in my head, like, ah, oh, he stumbled out. Best case, rolled his ankle. Worst case, snapped a bone or something. You know, you kind of alluded to it before that I have what's called combat lifesaver training, which again, you're not a medic by any means. You're just, you're trained on the very basics of medicine in order to keep them alive long enough to get to a medic. You know, how to splint the leg, how to, if there's a collapsed lung, how to, you know, all the, you know, give a IV, very simple things. So in my head, as the squad leader, I'm also going like, oh, fuck, like, I'm going to have to fill out paperwork about this, and it's going to be a whole thing, and this, oh, this, is, this just ruined the whole day. And so I get up to start walking over to him, because I'm, you know, again, I'm thinking I'm going to have to splint his leg, and I'm going to have to, there's going to be a whole thing, we're going to have to call it in. And as I'm about halfway between me and him, the Blackhawk pulls away, and that's the first time I can hear him, what he's yelling, and he's, I'm hit, I'm hit. And I start to hear the gunfire. I start to hear pa 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 pa. As the helicopter pulls away, all the kind of dust settles, but I can start to see little like pockets of dirt are popping around him, and that's where bullets are impacting, and they're shooting up dirt. It's hard to tell when there's a helicopter over you because it it makes a big mess. But as soon as it pulled away, I could clearly see that bullets were impacting around him. He's he can't get up. He's been shot through the leg. Was he shot before he jumped out? He was shot as he exited. Yeah, he was taking his first step out and they were shooting at the helicopter. Turns out later we found out too that the door gunner, uh, who's part of the, the the crew of the helicopter, he also was shot. Uh, he was shot through his leg. A bullet went right through the, the paneling of the outside and went through his like thigh slash hip. They had been shooting at both of them on the same side. And, and that's actually why the helicopter had pulled away so aggressively. Because usually they just kind of softly pull away. But this like... I didn't realize at the time, but it aggressively took off. I'm now standing out in the open in the middle of an ambush, not realize, like, I have no idea where it's coming from. My only assumption would be that it's coming from uphill. We're, we're pretty close to the summit, but we're still maybe 100 yards from the summit of this mountain. It was a small opening that the helicopters were able to drop us off at. I'm just, I have to assume it's coming from uphill. I just, you there's this this moment a fraction of a second in reality but what me felt like an eternity of going like okay he's hit they are trying to kill him like you can you, i can clearly see the bullets impacting around him i was over there behind this kind of like big rock thing and i wasn't getting shot at that i know of so you have that split moment of like do i dive back for cover or do i go out and get him I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. 
Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. Might sound heroic. It's not. It's just how we were trained. You don't leave a guy. So not knowing where the rest of my team is, knowing that they do, they know what they have to do. Like we've done this a million times. We, we've trained for this. We've been in firefights. We, we, we know the drill. I know I can trust my guys to do what they have to do without me saying anything. So I just charged at him, grabbed the back of his vest and started dragging him to what I could only assume was cover and concealment safety and hope, and then figure out, you know, the next step, gather Intel and, you know, figure out where my team is and kind of press the enemy. We, we always try to Gain the upper hand as fast as possible. We have overwhelming numbers. We have overwhelming weaponry and better training. And the last thing you want to do is be on your back foot long enough that they can then get the upper hand. So obviously in an ambush situation, they have the upper hand right away. So we have to use overwhelming force, shock and awe 
to gain that to, to gain that thing. So my, my thought is just getting back to safety, assess the situation, and attack. In the process, and again, this is all happening in what had to be 20 or 30 seconds, but I got to him, grabbed his vest, started dragging him back, and at that moment, it felt like he got stuck on something. As if, you know, something like his vest or his belt or something caught caught on a branch or something, because I was dragging him fine and then all of a sudden stops. And I and I look down and I don't see anything that he's stuck on. And so I just I sling my weapon behind my back, use my other hand, and then just pull as hard as I can and get him moving again. What I didn't realize was he wasn't stuck on anything. I had been shot right through the bicep that was pulling him. So I had severed all the muscle and shattered the bone in my arm that had been dragging him. So I was just basically pulling at my own arm at that point. So I had grabbed him, I'm pulling him, didn't realize I'd been shot at that point, yanking him, dragging him, dragging him, dragging him. And almost there, it happened again. Like it just felt like he, I mean, he wait, it was like dragging the Titanic behind me. And I couldn't understand it because we, we train, like we do stuff like this. We drag guys, we drag, throw them on our shoulders, we carry them. And I'm like, my brain can't process. Why is he all of a sudden so heavy? And I'm like, did he grab onto a Rob Boulder or something? He's like, he doesn't want me to drag him. And like, no, he's just, he's still grabbing his arm and he's yelling. And so I just, I pull with all my might. And what had happened was at that point, I'd been shot through my right, the opposite arm, uh, my right shoulder. It actually went like, kind of, eh, not my armpit, but kind of upper above my armpit, went through my shoulder, up, and it was actually headed towards my neck, hit my clavicle, and redirected and came out my back. So I had completely, so in one arm, I was basically separated at the bicep, and in my other arm, I had they had just blown my own shoulder through my back. So there was just nothing basically connecting my arm. There was no shoulder joint. There was just nothing. Didn't feel a thing. Adrenaline's going, you know, we're doing a thing. So I, I got him back. I dropped him and I just said, stay down. And I went to peek. And in my head, it was, all right, lift your weapon up. Look through my scopes. Try to assess the situation. Start giving out orders. And let's do this. But as I went to lift my gun up, just my arm just kind of dangled at my sides. And I'm like, well, that's weird. And my brain's just screaming, pick up your damn gun. And my arm's just kind of slapping at it and just kind of flopping around. Again, again, this is, this, it feels like this is two minutes of me going like, hey, what's, what is going on? This is so weird. I'm, I'm, I can't be in combat shock. I mean, I've, I've, I'm used to this. I've done this a million times. It's not my first rodeo. But uh, obviously, this might have been three seconds. The next thing I know, it felt like I got hit by a bus because I was just blown off my feet landed on my flat on my back what had happened was i had been shot twice in the chest now i wore i had body armor on and thankfully the armor stopped the two rounds from penetrating me but the impact of the force had actually shattered my ribs and collapsed my lung and so i'm laying there i'm having trouble breathing and i, I you know my brain is screaming get up get up get up get up and my body just was like, nope, you're on timeout, you know? And I, I just, I couldn't move. And I'm laying there and I'm like rocking back and forth, trying to get my body to get up, get get back in the fight. This is, there's no time for this, man. Come on. 
And I'm just laying there. I'm wheezing. I can't breathe. I couldn't even call out because I, I, I couldn't catch my breath. All I remember is one of my other teammates came over. <laughs> Funny enough, the other every every four man team has one combat lifesaver, one CLS guy. I was the guy for my team. There were two teams on that hill that day. So the other combat lifesaver actually ran over to me, got on top of me, and he's looking down at me. Mexican kid, loved him to death. Super brown dude, <laughs> and very thick accent. And he's like, "Hey, hey, you okay? You okay?" And I was like, "I was like, yeah. can't catch my breath." He's like, hey, and I'm like, he sees I'm trying to stand out. He's like, no, no, stay down, stay down, stay down. And, you know, the whole while, you know, gunfire, explosion. I mean, they're throwing grenades and RPGs and all, all types of stuff. I can hear my guys, you know, yelling orders at each other and they're, they're firing and whatnot. We were very lucky that we had Apaches, uh, the gunships on, on standby. And so they, I mean, they're, they're hovering over and they're firing down and doing this, all this stuff. It's like, hey, man, you're hit, you're hit, you're hit. And I'm like, I was like, okay, where, where am I hit? And he's like, I, I don't know, man. There's a lot of blood. And I was just like, okay, okay. And he's like, I could, you know, he's patting me down. He's looking, he's like, there's blood everywhere. I was just like, oh, God damn it. And I was like, all right. My training starts kicking in. I go, okay, look for the exit holes. Because entry holes, very small. Exit holes, very large, typically where you bleed out from. Especially in combat where they're firing 7.62 round. But these are not nine millimeter little bullets. They're armor piercing 762, very high caliber, very destructive. You know, they're meant to stop vehicles. So they they go through bodies re- and leave a leave a mess. And so I'm like, you check for exit holes. And he's patting me down. He's like, he's like, I see a lot of blood, but I don't see any exit holes. And at this point, I could start to feel, I was starting to feel like my energy draining. It's like a battery just slowly dying. And I'm like, oh man, I think, I think I'm going into shock. I think I'm bleeding out. Like I said, I've been in combat a million times. We've been in firefights the last hours. And I can, I mean, you just go, you just go. But this was, this was weird. I felt, I just felt like I was, I literally felt like I was draining. I'm like, Hey man, I, I think I'm bleeding out. I think I'm bleeding out. And he's like, he's like, I don't, I don't see anything. I don't see anything. Like he saw blood, but he's like, I don't see a, like a big pump of blood. And at that point I'm laying on my back. The only way I could describe it is this, is if you like you laid on a rock, like a big rock. I felt like like there was a big rock under my back and my my right shoulder. I said, Hey man, check my back. Something's 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 weird. And so he slid his hand into my vest and immediately yanked it out. And as I as we were both looking at it, it is just it looked like he dipped his hand in paint. Like it was just bright red. And he's like, there's a hole in there. And I was like, all right, how big is it? And he just kind of balled up his fist and showed it to me. And I was like, all right, we got it. Like, that's, that's priority number one. We got we, we to fix that. And so he like, you know, in the middle of this <laughs> battlefield, he's taking off my vest and he's, because we had things, these little, cur- they call curlex. It was like a, like a bandage roll. And you typically unroll it and use it. I said, man, just open it. Don't even unroll it. Just shove the whole thing in there. Just, just shove it in. And so he pops it. He shoves it in there. That was the first time I really felt pain. That was that was excruciating. He shoved it in there and he wrapped the bandage around it and he started putting tourniquets on my arms. I remember he was he was a private at the time, but he starts yelling over at our platoon sergeant, much higher ranking official. And he's like, You gotta get those fucking birds back here now. And the platoon sergeant's like, Look, there's no way, it's too hot. They're not gonna come back in. They're not gonna fly into gunfire. They're just not gonna do it risk everybody else and 
the number one rule they teach you in CLS and combat lifesaver training is you always reassure the patient. Always, hey, you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. You'll be fine. So this private yells over to the and goes, if we don't get those fucking birds here now, he's going to die. He's fucking dying right now. And I was just like, oh, man, come on. What you mean to say is he's going to be okay. <laughs> he's fine. We just need a little help. But to his credit, he, like, he's yelling at his platoon sergeant. And he's like, you get those fucking birds in here now. And so they called it in. And what they did was they they landed like way, or not even landed. They hovered way down the mountain. Way down. Like to the point where like when I saw them, they looked like an ant. This big, big black hawk looked like an ant down at the bottom of the hill. So another guy from the team comes running over. And we have this thing called a skidco. It's like basically that canvas that you use for like a stretcher. But we thought, hey, you don't need the poles. You just need this canvas. So we just had this rolled up canvas that we carried with us. And like he starts unrolling it. He's like, all right, we're going we're gonna to roll you onto this thing. And we're going to drag you down to the helicopters, get you out of here. And in my head, I'm like, no, like I'll be dead before you drag me what felt like three football fields down this rocky, dirty mountain. I'll be dead before we get there. So I tell him, like, pick me up. We're going to run. I had this whole time. I've been like, move your feet, move your feet. Cause my concern was that I'd been shot in the spine and that I was like paralyzed. So the whole time they're working on me and doing all this stuff, I'm just like, move your feet, move your feet, move your feet. Move your feet. And I had just started, my feet had started to move and I'm like, all right, cool. I'm, I'm not paralyzed. So that's good. They're like, no, nah, man, we can't like, you know, still gunfire and explosion. At one point, a grenade landed like right behind the little divot we were in. And like both guys threw their bodies over me. So I asked them later, I was like, why would you do that? And they're like, well, you were already so fucked up that like, we didn't want anything else to happen. You're like, yeah, but you risk your, your body to cover my already wounded body. And they're like, yeah, it's in the moment. It's just, it's just natural reaction. So we, we didn't want you to take any more damage. It seems like that to you, but to anyone hearing this story, this, the, the whole story is filled with hero characters. No, 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 this is, I mean, this is typical for us. Like, don't get me wrong. If it, if it was a cook out there doing this stuff, all right, heroic, because that is above and beyond the call of duty. But like, this is what we train to do. I, I hate, I hate the whole hero thing. Cause it's like, if a football player makes an amazing play, you're not going to be like, well, he's, he's the hero. Like, that. Yeah, it's his job. He's he's paid to do that thing. And and so for us, it just, we were more concerned about keeping each other alive than than any heroics or, or oh, I'm going to get a medal for this. Like, I couldn't really, I couldn't give shit less about medals and all these sports and whatnot. So I'm I'm super appreciative. These guys did their job and, and it kept me alive. And they picked me up after much insisting. I said, you will fucking pick me up because you're not going to let me die here. And so they picked me up and basically put, you know, one arm over each guy and we just hauled ass down the mountain. And my team was doing the things they needed to do to give us cover. They stayed and fought and they got me out of there. They got me out of there. And and um once I got on the bird, uh, the other guy, the guy that got shot in the leg, he was there. I'd lost track of him once I had my own problems to deal with, but they had gotten him there and they flew us they flew us out of there. The the, the rest of the my team and my crew, they stayed and fought, uh, won that battle, and they flew us out of there immediately. So w- within you know, 15, 20 minutes, I'm, I'm already back, flying back to the base. They have like an emergency. Like as soon as you hit the flight line of our base, they have like a little mud hut. It's basically like an emergency trauma center. And so they, they basically put me right into surgery. Right as soon as I touched down, they, they grabbed me and 
uh, knocked me out, put me into surgery. And I'll never forget, I never, I didn't lose consciousness the whole time. It's all through this whole process. I never lost consciousness. Luckily, we had a really good combat medic who was on the flight with us. Like he stayed on, he stayed on the helicopter. I don't, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you why. We, we very rarely had, like we had like a, like a lower level medic usually with our teams. But like, for whatever reason, like we had like the head guy, like the captain, I don't know why he was with us on that mission. Thank God he was because the whole time we're flying back, like he's starting work on me. He's putting in IVs. He's giving me flu. Like he's doing that whole, you know, five, 10, 15 minute ride back. Like he's already working on me to keep me alive. So that way, as soon as we hit the ground, they rolled me right into surgery and I didn't lose consciousness right up until they put me on the surgery table and they, they knocked me out. And I'll, I'll never forget because there was a buddy of mine was one of the medics there and they put me down and I kind of looked at him. And I caught eyes with him and I was like, like I could tell he's looking at me like, Oh God. And I, I asked him, I was like, Hey man, how bad is it? And he just kind of very like, just shook his head and was kind of like, and then they knocked me out. So like, that's the, that's the last memory is of him kind of looking at the floor, shaking his head. And I'm like, Oh, well, fuck, I guess, I guess that's it for me. And then I woke up three days later, a whole other part of uh, Afghanistan. I was in Bagram, main part of main base in Afghanistan. They kind of walked me through what happened and the extent of my injuries. I spent a day or two there. From there, they flew me to Germany. There's a place called Launchstuhl Regional Medical Facility. It's it's our army base, our army uh, medical facility in in overseas. And if you're you know if you take a bullet in the leg, that's where they patch you up, and then they'll figure out what to do with you. But they basically told me the extent of your injuries are too too severe for us to deal with you here. So I was there for maybe three days, four days while they awaited a flight to take me back to the States. From Germany, went to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And I spent the next two years in and out of the hospital. Uh, I was like six weeks in ICU, six months as an inpatient. should have been longer, but at that time, there was just so many people. They needed beds. So six months until I was ambulatory, I could kind of walk around. And then they put me in a housing right outside the hospital and just kind of made me walk back and forth for my surgeries and appointments and things. So, and then I spent, yeah, spent two years uh, recovering. And after those two years, I was medically retired from the military. So your, your two week vacation turned into two years and beyond extended, (laughs) extended vacation. Yeah. Wow. Now I understand you, while you were recovering is when that's when you met your wife or your future wife. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another whole long story. The short of it is that, yes, when uh, my wife was in town, she was a tourist. She was in town, you know, visiting. And it was one of my first, I had been in the hospital eight months, nine months at that point. And I was just like, I'm going stir crazy. I was like, I just need to get out. I need to go. And so I told the doctors, can I go outside? Can I, you know, walk around? They're like, all right, just, you know, you could tour the gardens and things like that. Just like, don't leave, don't leave the base. So I got a taxi and I went to the mall as one does. And uh, yeah, I bumped into her there and, and we got to talking. And I mean, I looked like straight up death. I'd lost like 80 pounds. That was like a solid, I was a muscular dude and I'd lost so much weight. I, one arm was in a cast, one arm was in a sling. My eyes were all bloodshot and like dark. I, I looked like a skeleton with, with broken arms and stuff. And um, we just started talking. Yeah, we, we hit it off and. I asked her to go out with me. I, I was I was super high on painkillers, so uh, I had no filter and no like. Normally, I'd be like, 
she was out of my league at, on my best day. So there's no way, like I would have considered talking to her on my best day, maybe. But like this, I, w- I was so drugged out that I was just like, ah, eh, whatever. <laughs> and I just. I just what do you got to lose? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then we, we, we went out and we had a good time and it was, the story was fascinating enough that it kept her interested and she started visiting me in the hospital and we're together. After a couple of years, you were at least good enough to go and live on your own, not have to stay in the hospital or be an outpatient anymore. How did you figure out how to transition back into civilian life? When I figure that out, I'll let you know. Uh, <laughs> So again, it's different now, but when I retired, when I medically retired, this was 2007, there were hundreds of thousands of guys getting wounded and injured and like they were overwhelmed. There was no exit program. Like I I remember I was going to therapy. I was going to like physical therapy, occupational therapy and going to my appointments and checkups. And I remember one of the docs going like, Hey man, you're looking great and you're, you're doing good. And yeah. And then I had they like, hey, you need to go to this one office. And I went there. I'm like, hey, can you sign this? And I was like, sure. And they're like, all right, cool. Uh, you're now medically retired. And I was like, wait, what? And they're like, yep, good luck. I was like, what? What do, what do I do now? And they're like, oh, you don't got to do nothing. Like, you, you're going to get your, your medical retirement and your pay. They're like, go home and just enjoy it. You've earned it. And I'm like, what? I would have been 20, I think 24 when I officially medically retired. And I just, that's it. I just, just like that, I was out and I, I didn't really have anywhere to go. I had no plans. I had, I never even, you know, thought about what was next. I, I honestly, foolishly, me being stubborn the way I am, I assumed I was going to go back to duty. Like I was going to recover and I was going to go back to active duty. And they did not see it that way. <laughs> I had some family in Pennsylvania at the time. And so I was just like, well, I guess I'll just go there. And I, I went out there and I, I bought a house in the mountains far from anybody. I didn't want to be bothered by anybody. And uh, it was, it was a rough, it was rough. I'll be honest, man. Like the attention to my physical being had been first and foremost for the last, you know, two years. I mean, as it should be, right? I, I, I literally died twice. I died twice. They had to bring me back. I had 44 surgeries and hundreds of hours of therapy. But never once had I taken the time to really kind of reflect mentally or check in mentally with how I'm doing. And so at first it was like, oh, this is great. You know, I can, I can, I'm a retiree. I can sit around and watch TV and I get a check. I mean, it's not a lot of money, but it was enough to survive on. Like I could afford, I could afford food and, and, and my mortgage and things. And, I'm not going on trips or anything, but like we, you know, my wife was working at the time, so we were okay. I just, I did that. I did that for a while and didn't realize that I was sinking slowly into like a dark depression. Like the PTSD part of it really didn't become like, it's not something that like, oh, there it is. And it's, it's there from the get go. Cause it was like, oh, everything's fine, you know, and, and doing okay. And, you know, like we're worried on your physical health and then you're worried on like, okay, can we financially support each other? And I'm like, oh, okay, we're good. And uh, six months go by, a year goes by and my wife's working. I'm just kind of chilling and doing my thing. And like, I, I got into like little projects around the house. Like I'd, I'd paint this or I'd build that or 
cut the grass or dig a hole, whatever it is. And I just kept myself busy. But all the while, I was kind of shrinking further and further inside of myself. And I didn't know it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know why I was this way. And and my wife were arguing and fighting. Nothing violent, violent person. But PTSD is a big spectrum. And so obviously, the headlines really capture like the blackout drunk and the violent and the drug using, you know, parts of it. But on the other side of the spectrum is a very isolating, depressing, social anxiety and hyper vigilance and not sleeping and all these things. And so that's kind of where I was. I wasn't sleeping. I'd be patrolling my house at three in the morning. There, there, there'd be a week or two that I didn't even step foot outside my house. I just, I was just, you know, sounds like the pandemic, but like, this is, this is years ago. And uh, I just, I was spiraling. I was, it was getting worse and worse. It seems like, I don't know if when they, when they said, okay, you're done here, you know, you're on your own now. Was there any recognition that of PTSD, that it might be like, Hey, watch out for this. You know, if you start to think these things or depression, or I would imagine survivor's guilt is, is part of that. Sure. But they didn't, they didn't warn you about any of that possibly happening at that time. No, no, I, it's a lot better now. I've talked to people who have transitioned in the last couple of years and, and there, there are programs they realize where they kind of screwed up. And so there's like, you have to take classes now, like on like financial classes and like classes on like, here's how to claim your benefits. Like I, I didn't know any of these things. I didn't know how to get my benefits. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. They just like, here's the door. It was really, it was really hard for many years. And I was just very fortunate that I met the right person at the right time. And like, my wife was always super supportive, but she didn't know what to do. She's no, she's no psych clinician. She didn't know what, what I need. She was just there to be supportive, but she had no idea how to help me. The only way I can describe it is I met this guy and he recognized really quickly what I was going through. He had been, he was a veteran. He had been through something very similar. And he's like, Hey man, you know, like you're, you're dealing with PTSD. You, 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 you know, you got PTSD. You need, you need help. And I was like, no, like I, I know guys with PTSD. I know those blackout drunks put their fist through the wall. They get arrested every weekend. Like that's not me. It's like, no. Nah. And he, so he starts to goes like, well, do you sleep well? Like, nah, but you know, I'm, I'm a night owl. And he's like, oh, well, you know, you have a lot of anxiety. I'm like, well, you know, the world sucks. So yeah, sure. And then he's like, well, are you eating okay? I'm like, nah, yeah, but I'm not that hungry. And like, he's giving me all these things and I'm giving all these excuses. He's like, dude, you just checked off every single box of PTSD, like all of them. And I was like, huh. He sat down with me and he talked. I remember we talked for hours and he kind of made it his mission to like coach me up and like, He's like, look, man, I've been through this. I know what I'm talking about. Like, let's, you know, let's research it. Let's do it. And he started, you know, dragging me out of my house. Like he would come pick me up to do stuff. He's like, hey, man, we're going to go. We're going to go fishing. And he would just drag me out because you got you to get out of your funk. You got to get out of your bubble. So we just started doing stuff. And little by little, you know, I learned, you know, what he was talking about. And I listened and I would see him talking to people about his experiences. And he'd been through some crazy stuff. And in my head, I was just like, how do you do that? How do you just talk about what's inside? Like we're trained. You don't show weakness. You don't, you don't show you're hurting. You suck it up. You drive on, you take a knee, drink water and you fight on. And here he was being very vulnerable and opening up about these really hard experiences. And I, I just, I baffled me how he could do that. And he, and the comment he told me is he goes, um, he's like, when you carry that stuff, it's like little baggage. It's like you're carrying bags. And when you open up and you talk to somebody about it, you're 
you're basically asking them to help you carry this baggage and the weight gets lighter. And I was like, man, that's some psycho babble nonsense and, you know, this and that. And I was like, yeah, one day, I, you know, I talked to my wife a little bit about some stuff I had saw and some stuff that I had did. And, and she was very you know, receptive of it and, and listened. And, and I remember I felt a tiny bit better, like a, just a tiny bit lighter. And, and so I, little by little, I started opening up more and sharing more and, and started feeling maybe not better, but just lighter and feeling a lot of that weight come off me. And then I started, I started seeing a VA shrink and I started taking medicine and I, like I started opening up to the fact that maybe I'm not doing okay. And that maybe I'm not the best person to help me through this situation. And so went to a lot of smarter people and, and started listening and started actively trying to get better. And, and luckily over you know years, it was not an overnight thing, but different, you know, participate in different programs and different therapies and try different things. There's not, there's no one pill. There's no one therapist that's going to fix everything that's damaged. And so I got tired after a couple of years of, of letting the like life pass me by. And so I just started saying, you know what, I'm going to say, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to be open to things and I'm going to try things and, and yeah, it's scary, but I'm just going to, I'm going to push, I'm going to push myself and I'm going to try to get outside of this bubble that I've created. And little by little, things got better, things got brighter. And I, I started doing more and I started being more active and I didn't work for many years. It, I mean, I, remember I retired in 2006 and I didn't work like a job until 2013. So it'd been almost six, seven years. But in that time, I, I had to kind of find out who I was and rebuild myself physically, obviously, but really more emotionally and spiritually. Like it took me a long time to realize that the uniform got ripped away from me, literally, figuratively and literally, it got ripped away from me. Guys have trouble when they, when they transition out of the military and that's on their terms and they struggle. So for someone like me, who I, my identity was fully wrapped up in me being a soldier. Like it was 98% of my identity. So to literally have that ripped off of my body and not given a choice and not given a, a way to separate, not never having closure. I never saw my guys again after that day. Since that day, I've seen only maybe four or five of them here and there as we've crossed paths in life. Uh, and then, you know, Facebook and Facebook and things like that. But it was very hard and it took me a long time to come to grips with it. Luckily, like I said, I had the right people and the right organizations and the right treatments and everything. And and finally, about 2013, I realized, realized that maybe, maybe I have more to give. Maybe I have more left inside of me and and I wanted to work and I wanted to contribute. Because like I said, we were making by. I mean, again, it's not, not rich by any means, but we were making by. But I figured if I work, I still get to collect my my retirement because that's I've earned it. But if I work, like we could live a better life. And so I I got back into the workforce. And then yeah, I just I, I started getting more involved in things and and things have been getting better and better since. And you've done a lot of stuff. I mean, you got into skydiving scuba diving and kind of circling back to the question I asked you almost an hour ago now, comedy. Mm -hmm. How did you end up getting into stand-up comedy? You hit it on the head. Like I got into a lot of stuff and it, it was all part of challenging myself. And I had this idea one day that like there was a turning point 
where my life post-injury was better than it had ever been pre-injury. It was a very long road to get to that point. But once I realized that, I realized, oh my God, like the sky's the limit. And so, yeah, I started, I, I got certified scuba diving, advanced open water, you know, deep sea diver, scuba diving and skydiving and you know, I'm driven race cars and gun shooting and doing like all this crazy stuff. I've driven a NASCAR, you know, around the track and like I, I've done all this stuff. And I was on the stage at the NFL draft. I got to announce one of the draft picks. And like I just I opened myself up to all these opportunities. And as just as much as the cool fun stuff, I've also done a lot of volunteering. I've worked with Habitat for Humanity and Warrior Project and USO and Armed Services Arts Partnership and all these volunteer opportunities and just wanted to make something of myself and and to do more and to keep challenging myself. And so many years into the process, this would have been about 2015, doing well. And I'm a volunteer, I mentor, I do all these different things. Uh, one of the things I do is I run the support group for disabled vets. And one day, one of these guys came in and he was talking about a program he had gotten involved with. And it was like, oh, it's so cool. And he's talking about it. And he's like, one of the things, it's like an arts program. It's free for veterans and their family members. And you know, they do creative writing and they do you know acting and they do all these artistic you know glass blowing and like all this stuff but one of the things he said they do caught my attention and it was they had a stand-up comedy boot camp and the idea was that in a six-week class that they would teach you stand-up comedy the fundamentals of stand-up comedy i thought man you know I, I loved comedy growing up and i really felt like like i'd always been the class clown i was in dramatics obviously like i told you and thinking back after my injury, I, I lost that part of myself. I, I wasn't making people laugh. I wasn't laughing. You know, I become somber and serious and depressed and all these different things. And I said, man, I would really love to recapture that comedy part of myself, the humorous part of myself. And, and then the other side of it was the idea of standing on stage and everybody looking at you is like a person with anxiety is like, that's their, their nightmare. But that went into me wanting to challenge myself. And I said, okay, if I can do this, I can do anything. I signed up for the class, did the six weeks. And, and really for me, it was just to check this off the bucket list. This was to say, I once performed stand-up comedy. I did it the same way I, all the other things I've done. Fly fishing and, and I, I flew an airplane and like all these different things that I've done is like, okay, just to check it off. I've done it. I've experienced it. But in the course of doing that six weeks, man, I fell in love with it. I really did. The organization's fantastic. Highly recommend if anybody's interested. Armed Services Arts Partnership, ASAP. Great organization. But I love the people. I loved being around vets and, and just making each other laugh and just cracking each other up in, in that, that spirit, that, that pat. Like, just all kind of reawakened in me, something that had went to sleep when I got injured. And I performed on stage at the Washington, D.C. Improv legendary stage in dc i mean the clips out there you can you can find it on youtube to look my name up it's there but i think i did a good job you know i killed it and i just i i fell in love with it i fell in love with it and i wanted to do it every chance i got the trouble with performing comedy is that you know if you're not in a major city very hard to have opportunities so like i'm about an hour outside of dc and anyone can tell you that if you're if you're pursuing comedy like you have to be out there like every night two or three a night i mean it's and it's you're not going to hit up one at two o'clock in the afternoon like they're all 10 o'clock 11 o'clock 12 o'clock at night so i i did it man i did it for a while and got pretty good at it 
entered the World Series of Comedy, placed in the top 40. Actually, I stopped at the top 40 because my son was born the week. So there's the next performance, which would then get you into like the top 10. I actually pulled myself out because my son was due to be born that week. And I chose, I'd rather be there for my son's birth than, you know, had I done the thing, if I do good, I place in the top 10, the next stage is Vegas and the whole thing. But, but I, I made my choice and I'm still happy with it. No, no regrets. So yeah, so I, I've, I've done amazing. I got to perform in New York City on Gotham Comedy Club. I've performed with Nikki Glaser, Roy Woods Jr., Janine Garofalo, uh, uh, Seth Herzog, a bunch of others. I got to perform at a private event for former President Jimmy Carter. He had a private event. He asked me to perform. And so I've gotten to do really cool things with comedy. But yeah, it just it started getting hard to keep up with because I do have a day job and I had a new baby and my wife and like I I didn't like working all day and then having to be gone all night. It just I never seemed like, you know what, I'm gonna commit to this all the way and like be a traveling comedian and all these things. Like I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But I also had to recognize this was not something that was gonna pay my bills. This was not something that like I'm not gonna end up on, you know, Jimmy Fallon or, or anything like that. So I had to figure out pick my spots and, you know, only do certain things and, you know, certain appearances for certain friends or, you know, charity events I would do, but, uh, I wasn't gonna be the guy that's traveling or out there every night. And, uh, I had to figure out another way to channel that energy and channel that creativity and channel that passion and things. And, and that led me to other things. And that's the next thing I want to ask you about. You have a weekly live show online. And that's on WTFNationRadio.com. And it's a show called Pop Culture Warrior. Well, mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Pop Culture Warrior was born because I was doing the comedy thing and was having a fair amount of success with it. And right at the time where I was kind of starting to get burned out and like, oh, I, can't, I can't really do it. WTF Nation Radio is a veteran-owned, veteran-operated kind of internet radio station. And I guess they heard about me or they saw one of my clips or something and they reached out to me and they're like, Hey man, we'd love to have you be a guest for an interview just like this on one of the shows. I'd never been on a guest, a guest on a show or a podcast or anything like that at that point. So I was like, you know what? Something that I've not done. Let's cross it off the bucket list. And so I came on as a guest and it was great. I had a lot of fun. We're laughing and we're joking and all this fun stuff. And then, Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great. Awesome. A couple months went by and other stuff had been happening for me. I won this, there's this award I won for, for recognition in community service and, and giving back. And, you know, I had become friends with some of the guys at the station you know, on Facebook and things. And so they saw I won and they're like, Hey, you should come back on the show and talk about it. Said, okay. I'll come back on. So I came back on the show and again, we had such a great time. We're laughing. I'm telling stories and all these different things. And, and they're like, man, you know, you should throughout the whole second interview, they're like, man, you should you should have a show on the station. Like you, you, you're, you can talk, you're great. You have stories that you should do. And I was like, Oh, that's a nice thing to say. It's one of those things. Nice people say like, Oh yeah, you're great. And blah blah. And so I was like, sure, 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 sure. And then we finished the, the taping and, and the show. And, and afterwards they're like, Hey man, we're serious. You should, you should consider joining us here at the station. I was like, ah, nah, I'm okay. And it's not really my thing and whatnot. And they kind of hounded me about it. And finally I listened and I was talking to the station manager and, He's like, he's like, man, we'd love to have you. You've got a great energy and this and this and that. We'd love to have you. He's like, look, 
what would you, and I asked him like, well, what would I do? Am I I just going to come on and tell stories? Like, am I doing comedy? Like, what's the thing? And he goes, it could be whatever you want it to be. He's like, it's, it'll be your show. You can, you can make it whatever you want to be. When I started sitting down and thinking about it, like, I love pop culture stuff. I love movies. I love TV. I love collectibles. I mean, you, you can see the background of my, uh, all the, all the stuff. I love all the stuff. So I said, well, if I were going to do this, I would want to do it where I can talk about all the nerdy, geeky stuff that I like to talk to my friends about, you know, video games and Marvel movies and, and all the TV show stuff and like the stuff that I love and I can talk about for hours because, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love talking about the military stuff I did, but that was, you know, a small section of my life. And I love talking about the comedy stuff. And that's been a s- small section of my life. But I grew up loving comic books. I, lo- I grew up loving cartoons and movies and things. So this is deeper embedded to me as a person than, than any of that other stuff. And so I was just like, well, I'd love to do a, a pop culture show. And they're like, sold, do it. And so I was just like, oh, really? Okay, cool. The funny thing is the one comment the guy goes, the station manager goes, listen, so this is a weekly show. You're going to do two or three hours live. He's like, do you think there's enough pop culture stuff to talk about that you could do this weekly? And I was like, oh, come on, dude. Like, you're kidding me? There's something new coming out every day. So we launch, we launch February of 2020. And what happens in March of 2020? The pandemic shuts everything down. There are no new movies. No new TV shows, no new video games, no new content. So the whole first year of my show, I had almost nothing to talk about. And it was crazy. And literally, I would be scraping the bottoms of the internet barrel. Like, we're talking like, oh, this thing, they're doing a weird challenge. They'll bury you alive for $50,000. And we're just talking about stuff like that. And like, we were just... And, you know, every week was like, okay, so this movie's been canceled. That movie's been canceled. But this is what I think that movie will be about. And and we just, we made it, we made do with what we had. And that actually kind of birthed, because this was supposed to be just two or three hours of like pop culture headlines. That birthed the idea that I was like, man, I'm running out of things to talk about. Hey, but I know a couple of friends of mine that are comedians. I'll have them come on and we'll talk about comedy. That'll, that'll fill some time. Sure. That'll fill some time. And then, and then that was well received. And then I was like, okay, well, I, I have friends of mine that they write plays. They, they do, they do script writing and things like that. So we, we talked about that and little by little, it was like, oh, I through a friend of a friend. I know this director and I had him come on. And so little by little, it, it, it was still, you know, an hour of pop culture headlines, but then it was like, oh, I can, I can, talk about the industry. I can talk about entertainment in general. I could have, I had stuntmen on, I had uh, writers, producers, directors, actors. I mean, you name it, I've had on the show. I mean, everything up to the the craft services department. You know what I mean? Like I, I've had it all. I had a, a video game company. It was really well received. And everybody always said like, oh my God, this is the best interview I've ever been a part of. I ended up interviewing Louis Anderson, a guy who's been in show business for 35 plus years. And he's like, this is the best interview I've ever been on. I've done this a lot. He says, this is the best interview I've ever had. That says something. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of it had to do with, I've, I've done a lot of talking. And so like, I don't know, I guess I know the questions I like to answer. And I just kind of applied that to like, it's, it's not, oh, what do you like about being an actor? You know what I mean? It's like, which is very like, ugh, this question again, <laughs> or how, how'd you get to start acting? And it's like, dude, just Google it. It's out there. And so, yeah, I just, I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be that. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the industry and all the, the behind the scenes stuff. And so it's, you know, a lot more practical things, things we don't get to hear about a lot. And obviously 
I do kind of pay tribute to the guests and like, hey, let's let the people that don't know you learn a little bit more about you. But also, I'm, I'm curious about all the behind the scenes stuff. And so it got better and better. And our first two years, we were nominated uh, for a podcast award. We were nominated for Best in Entertainment Podcast Award right out the gate, which was didn't win, fortunately, but we were just figuring things out. And so we we had the freaking the Webby Awards just reached out to us and they're like, you should consider entering. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that was a thing, but all right. So it, it's been it's been going great. I just last week I talked to Robbie Amell, who's a phenomenal actor who is gonna be one of the biggest actors in the world here in a couple weeks when he's in Resident Evil when it comes out. It, it's been a blast. It's been an absolute blast. I've really enjoyed it. And um, to plug it real quick, it's Pop Culture Warrior. It's Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, uh, you know, we do an hour of, like I said, pop culture headlines and talk about movies and stuff, a lot of Marvel stuff. And and then I typically do a guest in the second hour. It's live. So you get to interact with it on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, anywhere that's live, we're live. It's obviously also recorded and then released as a podcast on top of that. But I love doing the live thing because the audience can watch and interact as it's happening. So if you love this actor, you love Robbie Amell, you could be in there, send the question into the chats and I'll ask him. I've even done it where people, like if you want to ask him a question yourself, record you asking the question, you shoot it to me, I'll play it for him. So you get to ask your question personally to that to that person. And also like, it's been a lot of fun. And I mean, we play games, we we giveaways constantly. I just... I love giving stuff away and yeah, it's, it's been so much fun. I, I'm loving it. It's so clear that you are just in your element doing <laughs> this to have such passion and have so much fun. And it's just awesome for me to see how far you've come and to, you know, to be where you are today. That's just unbelievable. And thank you for your service. Ah, long time ago. <laughs> feels like a lifetime ago if you'd like to see a video of CQ doing his stand-up comedy I've got that on the podcast website at whatwasthatlike.com slash 98 and if you'd like to hear another really intense story of war one of the earliest episodes of this podcast was with Josh he was in Iraq inside a tank here's a clip from that episode you know, I had like the life flash before my eyes kind of thing. Felt like I lived my whole existence again in like a split second and everything hurt. Like my outsides were on my insides and my insides were on my outsides. And then like came to like snap to kind of like what in the world? And I was like, where's my cigarette? <laughs> you know, I was so dead certain. Like, where is it? I can't believe this just happened, you know? And couldn't really tell and like slowly like all my senses came back to me and that's when I like hearing and then I could smell and like I'm actually looking around and like holy shit. You can hear Josh tell that whole story in episode six at whatwasthatlike.com slash zero six. Well, the wait is over. You've heard me talking about setting up the new podcast listener community and now it's ready. Up till now, we've been using a Facebook group, and that was okay for a while, but there are a whole lot of reasons I wanted to get away from Facebook, and that has now happened. So I'd like for you to go and check out our new place. It's at community.whatwasthatlike.com. 
just go there, set up your new profile, jump into some of the discussions, just kind of get familiar with it. I think it's going to be great. And since it's still kind of new, let me know if you come across something that doesn't quite work like it's supposed to, because I want to fix those things. But so far, it's looking pretty good. I've had a few of the current Facebook group listeners come over as beta testers, and now I'm inviting you. This is our special little place. So go check it out at community.whatwasthatlike.com. And one other thing I want to mention, if you have a product or service that you'd like to advertise here on the podcast, get in touch with me. The host-read ads on here are very effective, and you can reach many thousands of people pretty efficiently. So just drop me an email at scott at whatwasthatlike.com, and we can talk demographics, listener numbers, and all that, and see if what you have is a good fit for my audience. And now we have this week's listener story from a rather animated storyteller about his experience in a steam room. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. Okay, so my work had, at least had, a gym with it. Now, said gym cost a lot of money. It was like 60 bucks a month. Well, I'm cheap. I don't pay for stuff like that. I'm just, nah, that ain't for me, bro. Well, one week, they were like, hey, we need some more members. So we're going to make it free for anyone who works at this company to go to the gym. And I'm like, okay, bet. Because, you know, I like working out. I try to stay in shape and stuff, right? So this, this gym is nice. Like, dude, they've got like a pool. They've got a whole just decked out weight room. Dumbbells going up to like weight. I can't even imagine picking up. I mean, they had like a punching bag area. They had a track. It was dope. So, you know, I go get my workout in. I'm getting my pump and working up a sweat. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm getting sore, man. I am beat. And I know that this gym has a steam room. And I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be nice. I'm going to go chill in the steam room. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to kind of just cool down, which I find is hilariously ironic because it's a steam room. But, you know, well, you know what I mean? I'm in, go, wanting to go to this steam room, right? And so, you know, I go into the locker room. I uh, just get into, I stay in my shorts because I'm not a weirdo. And I'm like, all right, cool. We're going to hit this steam room. So I hit up in the steam room. You know what I'm saying? It's nice and steamy. I'm by myself, which is even better because that means I don't have to make awkward conversation with people. And I'm just chilling like a villain. I'm full sprawled out, man. I'm like Gucci. Well, lo and behold, a guy decides to join. I'm like, all right, that's fine. Whatever. And this dude comes in with nothing but like, essentially a loincloth of a towel around him. Like, this is a big old swole dude. Like, dude's got muscles on muscles just into it. Like, loincloth and everything looking like Tarzan up in this business. And I'm like, okay, okay then. Hey, sup, dude? I did a little head nod, you know, whatever. And he sits on the other side. And I mean, I don't know what day this guy was having, but this guy was just like, oh, he was fuming, He's throwing random swear words. And I'm like, okay, a little crazy. That's fine. You stay on your end. I stay on my end. You know, we're going to be good. Well, homeboy, out of whatever crevasse or pocket that he had, pulls out a shake weight. And I'm like, bro, where, what? Okay, then. And he just goes to town. I mean, he's... 
he's getting all the poses, you know what I'm saying? He he hitting it from the back, he from the front, you know, this guy is getting after pop, 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 pop. I mean, if he wasn't in a steam room, this dude would be working up all so wet. So he getting it for like a solid, it felt like eternity up in there. And I'm sitting in the corner like, oh, this is kind of weird. Because he's like grunt, like, and I'm like, this is weird. This is getting like really weird, Scoob. And uh, eventually he slams the shake weight down, drops a major F-bomb, grabs said shake weight, grabs his towel and walks out stark naked. And I'm like, bro, what just happened? Like, was that a mating ritual? Like, is this guy wanting me to go home with him? Like, is he the alpha now? I don't, I don't know how to feel about this. So next day rolls around and I'm like, all right, man, that was a statistical anomaly. Worst case scenario, I'm going to hit this, you know, I'm going to hit these weights. I'm going to go and I'm going to hit the steam room. I might have some weird old guy with the saggy everything hanging out and it's going to be a good time. It'll be fine. This is going to be fine. That ain't going to happen again. That just statistical anomaly. So I'm, you know, I'm in the locker room getting ready. Again, shorts because I'm not a weirdo. And I open up the door to the steam room. And it was like, it was like putting cheese on a mousetrap. The shake weight was sitting there by itself, catching all that steam. And I said, nope. I 180 so quick because I'm like, nah, fam, it's a trap right there. Uh Uh-uh, that ain't happening. And uh, never went in that steam room again.